You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. This episode is sponsored by Fusion Tech. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, Science and Technology Editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to Episode 64 of Meeting Pod, where we're talking the latest science informing Appendix A and B guidance documents with Bob Hansen, Principal of Hansen Tech LLC, and Jeff Sindelar, Professor and Extension Meat Specialist with the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As many of our listeners know, Bob founded Hansen Tech, a group of consulting engineers, in 2006 with the aim of providing the meat industry with independent, unbiased guidance on cooking, smoking, and chilling processes. He has also worked on thermal processing equipment and processes for more than 20 years, finding ways to make products safer, better, and faster at lower cost. He has co-invented or holds patents for a variety of systems, including hydrated surface lethality and web packaging pasteurization. And you'll also know Jeff, a regular contributor to Meeting Place, who's an all-rounder subject matter expert in the areas of meat science, meat processing, and food safety. His research program has focused on food safety investigations regarding thermal processing, alternative curing, and other relevant processed meat food safety technologies and strategies. Jeff is also credited with his leadership role in the development and realization of UW-Madison's Meat Science and Animal Biologics Discovery Program Building. As members of the North American Meat Institute's Appendices A and B Core Working Group since its inception in 2018, Jeff and Bob have been at the center of the group's review of 1999 and 2017 revised versions of the lethality and stabilization guidance documents, evaluating the science gaps identified by industry and helping to determine possible solutions before FSIS publishes final revisions. Along the way, the core working group and its scientific subgroups have published new science-based methods and validation steps to better inform the guidance, and much of it has made it into the 2021 revised documents, which FSIS has said will replace the 1999 and 2017 versions of Appendix A and B this year on December 14, 2022. It's been nearly four years since I got a call from our mutual friend, colleague, and meat industry icon, Bruce Tompkin, who told me about the formation of the NAMI Appendix A and B Working Group, and he wanted me to cover it in Meeting Place. I recall that he told me the science gaps and flaws in the guidance documents had weighed on his mind for 18 years since the last revision, and he really wanted to correct the science. So I got to work, and if nothing else, just to help Bruce put that problem to rest. So I'm excited to speak with Bob and Jeff today to get the scoop on where we've been, what we know now, and how the various research activities are helping small and very small meat and poultry processors better utilize Appendix A and B guidance. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Bob and Jeff. I am very delighted to have you on the program today. Super. Thank you for having us, Julie. We are honored and excited to uh, participate in your podcast. Hi, thanks, Julie. 
Well, you know, I think most of our listeners are going to know a little bit about the background. We've, like I said, we covered it in Meeting Place, but can you give just a brief background on the how and why the working group was formed and what your roles have been in terms of closing the science gaps in Appendix A and B? Sure, Julie. I'll take a stab at that one. So the working group was formed out of a response from the release of the 2017 versions of both Appendix A and Appendix B. And of course, that's USDFSIS, Appendix A and Appendix B for thermal processing and stabilization of further processed meat products. And it's quite an interesting story because, right, the original versions came out in 1999, have been guidelines and have been treated as guidelines. But because of the value that they have, the scientific value and the widespread utilization, they really became treated as almost regulations, right? And because of that, the process to update the, the 1999 versions into the 2017 versions became a really, really important one. So it was almost treated as a codified regulatory update, even though they still remain as guidance materials. So the working group, as it's called, formed as a response to these updated versions of the Appendix A and Appendix B guidelines. And of course, many of your viewers are already aware of this. But what many aren't aware is that there was a lot of behind-the-scenes work of identifying the group that should become part of that working group. Uh, in total, there were about 35 members, or, or I should say are about 35 members. 14-ish represent pure science. So, you know, academics like myself, those involved with the science and technology in various companies, about 10 of those represent the industry, small, medium, and large and about nine individuals represent different trade associations that all bring different perspectives, all different views, all different knowledge towards the topics of thermal processing and stabilization. One little point that I might make to kind of clarify is, you know, these documents are designed for supporting, you know, or providing safe harbors for small and very small establishments. However, everybody utilizes them in some regards. So even though they're designed or intended to support and help, right, small and very small establishments meet expected, you know, food safety parameters for cooking and cooling, really everybody utilizes them in some way, shape or form. Well, what would you highlight in terms of successes that the core working groups has had, like it maybe in research, engineering, or validation activities that have enabled some aspect of closing those science gaps? Yeah. So the 2017 versions definitely created some gaps, right? As new science and new technology and new processes and new food safety concerns right, have emerged over the years, that's definitely created gaps, right? Things that were concerned in the 90s when the original version of Appendix A and Appendix B were created, many of those still exist today, but then, of course, there's new ones, right, just as we've seen this progression of the changing face of food safety. So the working group really provided a voice and a unified response, right, to these gaps in the current state of food safety for both thermal processing as well as stabilization and cooling of these products. And what were some of the issues with the science that the new research addressed that you guys identified, you know, some issues, but 
what kinds of areas did those subgroups or individuals within the working group, when they set out to do these projects, what kind of research really resulted? What were the pipelines for that? Yeah. So the working group, you know, that group of about 35 individuals realized in some of the initial meetings, and this group was meeting on a regular basis, monthly, and in some case more frequent, but the working group spent a lot of time really trying to understand what the revised versions of those documents, you know, the Appendix A and Appendix B documents was communicating and how that would be impacted by the industry and what science was missing or existing somewhere out here in this, you know, science land, right? Stuff that had already been done. And for the science that was missing, how would we help address those gaps that were identified, right? And there were a couple of components of Appendix A and Appendix B or revised 2017 versions of Appendix A and Appendix B where there was no science available to support the expectations. And in some cases, there was no science that was even feasible to be created because of the parameters that weren't necessarily achievable, right? Bob, do you have any issues you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I can give you a couple of examples that came out of 2017 that we saw right away were issues. One was the 2017 Appendix A had a specific requirement that if processes were shorter than one hour, they had to be kept at 90% humidity for the entire time. So this was a new piece of the humidity requirements that Jeff and I immediately saw couldn't be done for impingement ovens. It would really immediately put all impingement ovens out of compliance. Impingement and spiral ovens typically cook products in anywhere from one and a half to 10 or 12 minutes, and they're not at 90% humidity. That's not even thermodynamically possible. So we saw an immediate problem there that, that had to be solved. This wasn't just a gap. This was a thermodynamic impossibility. And so we would have to do something with that. Additionally, there was another problem with Appendix B where you had to chill from 130 to 80 in an hour or 120 to 80 in an hour and a half. And neither one of those things are thermodynamically possible either. I just knew from experience that you can't actually chill some products that fast. So for example, if you've got turkey breast that's five inches thick, or you've got roast beef that's four and a half inches thick, they just simply cannot be thermodynamically chilled that fast, even if you dunked them in liquid nitrogen. So that was a problem too. And so those two areas are specific examples of of things that would require more research. So Jeff already fortunately had a project ongoing on the chilling side, and we just had to alert the USDA that there was an issue with those thicker products. Then on the short time, high temperature impingement process, we had some ideas on how to correct that. And we ultimately developed a process called hydrated surface lethality that could be used in lieu of the humidity requirements in Appendix A. And now we'll take a brief break from our conversation to hear a message from this episode's sponsor, Fusion Tech. Improving yields and consistency is possible in a Fusion Tech smokehouse. Our patented airflow technology allows you to set the location and duration of the oven breakpoint, meaning you can reduce the amount of overcooked and undercooked product on each rack. The result? Our customers have seen up to a 10% increase in yields, up to a 28% increase in consistency, and up to a 35% decrease in cook time over their previous oven. Improve yields and consistency across your product. Learn more and request a quote at https.ftiinc.org slash ovens. Now back to the podcast. 
So that's exciting because, as you noticed, one of the really useful methods to come out of these efforts is the incorporation of hydrated surface lethality steps, or HSL. Can you explain, Bob, a little bit about the research and the science behind the method and the benefit to processors? Sure, sure. So it was the development of this method was really triggered because of the shortfall in, in Appendix A. And Jeff and I had already been working on this issue with surface pasteurization. The humidity guidelines in Appendix A have always been flawed. They were developed a long time ago. They don't really address surface hydration specifically or surface pasteurization specifically. So we thought it'd be useful to develop a surface pasteurization method that could be used to fill this very pronounced gap in the 2017 version, which was this 90% humidity for the entire time of impingement cooking, which was not possible. So the key part of it, just rolling back to what the key part of it is, you're really just trying to surface pasteurize the products and make sure that no bacteria survive on the surface. The issue, which was developed a long time ago, is that when salmonella or listeria or, or really any pathogen become desiccated, they're much harder to kill. So we need to destroy them when they're in the hydrated condition, which is where most of the research has been done. And that's where they're easiest to destroy. And I have to tell you that the difficulty of killing desiccated bacteria and the speed with which they can be desiccated caught me completely flat-footed. I was not expecting that you could desiccate bacteria on the surface of meat in two minutes time. But it turns out impingement ovens are really, really good at drying product really fast. And salmonella are really, really good at becoming desiccated and being very thermally resistant at that temperature. And once they're desiccated, we found you can't even kill them at 200 degrees. So we need, in order to kill them at normal temperatures of, you know, 160 degrees or so, they need to be hydrated. So the, what the method does is, is it just assures that the surface is hydrated when we achieve a lethal temperature and that the time is long enough to destroy, in this case, the targeted seven logs of salmonella. And, and it's as simple as that. So, and that's the purpose of the method is just to make sure that we're hydrated at lethal temperature for a sufficient time to get the appropriate log reduction. So the concept is actually very straightforward, right? It's, as Bob's mentioned, achieve a temperature of the product that is create conditions at the surface of the product where it's moist, wet, so bacteria don't become dehydrated, and do it at a temperature at which it's lethal for bacteria. The trick is, right, how do you verify that or validate that, or both actually, right, for not only the products of which the hydrated surface lethality has, concept has been applied towards or worked through, which is high-temperature, fast-cooked products, you know, processes that are, you know, four minutes or shorter or around, you know, three and four minutes. How do you take that and apply that to lots of other types of products? Right. And would you guys say, I mean, I feel like this has been, you know, you've published this research and it's been out there. I feel like this is one of the biggest things to kind of come out of the core working group. But I mean, are you guys still active? Is there still things going on in the research pipeline that will affect possibly these final revisions to Appendix A and B? Yeah, great question. So the working group is still active. It had a little bit of an activity kind of slow down between the release of the 2017. And then, of course, it was what? At the release of the 2017 version, the, the group was very active, right? Working through, trying to understand those documents, understanding what responses need to be taken, what responses could be taken, right? The North American Media Institute created some um, short-term six-month grants, research grants to try to address some of these little issues. The hydrated surface lethality was actually funded in a different mechanism, completely supported by the industry, who identified, you know, surface lethality or the relative immune requirement 
that was included in the 2017 version to be, you know, not feasible. So as some of the gaps or research was coming in for the responding to the 2017 version, the working group started to, you know, slow down in terms of, of the frequency of meeting and the work that it was doing. However, as the 2021 version have come out, there's been a renewal resurgence of the group starting to work together again. Very specifically on this technology, Julie, it's, it's actually, as we've worked through it, it's become really very simple and very effective. So it makes sense to continue to work on it for impingement ovens, but also we think it has broader application across other products too, because it's a very simple, very straightforward surface pasteurization product or uh, process that uses the first principles process engineering as opposed to the more ad hoc humidity requirements that, that have existed in the past. Well, Bob, can you give me a few examples of the kinds of products that this could help with? Sure. In two minutes, we can explain very basically how it works and you can picture how this would apply across a lot of products. So specifically on impingement ovens, if you take a product, let's say a a chicken tender and you put it on a belt and you put it into an oven, the product is cold and you're moving it into a warm oven. So moisture condenses on it and the moisture will continue to condense on it until the surface reaches the dew point, which is specifically the temperature of moisture condensation. So moisture is going to condense on that cold product all the way up to the dew point. And then after that, the moisture starts to evaporate from the product and it evaporates at the wet bulb temperature. Now you can picture it's still hydrated at this point, right? So first you've got moisture condensing and now you've got moisture evaporating, but it's still fully hydrated. The water activity is actually 1.0. So we're fully hydrated at that point up until the surface temperature comes up to the wet bulb temperature. And then once the surface breaks above the wet bulb temperature, now we're dehydrating. So at that point, we can potentially get desiccated bacteria. But up until that point, until the point where the surface breaks above the wet bulb temperature, we're fully hydrated and we're at the wet bulb temperature. So if the wet bulb temperature is 120, we're not going to kill any bacteria. We're going to incubate bacteria. If the wet bulb temperature is 160, we're going to very effectively kill bacteria. In fact, we found in three minutes time, we would kill seven logs of salmonella. If your time is only a minute and a half, then you need to set your wet bulb at 180. You need to set a higher temperature because the time is shorter. So that's where the surface hydration, temperature, and the time all come together. So you can imagine now, if that was a ham in an oven, the same principles would still occur. So you could still be looking at wet bulb temperature and time and making sure that you've got a hydrated surface. And the only thing you need to do to make sure your surface is hydrated is make sure it's under the wet bulb temperature. And as long as it's less than the wet bulb temperature is hydrated, and as long as your wet bulb temperature is at a lethal temperature for a sufficient time, you'll have a sufficient kill. You don't need to know the relative humidity and you don't need to know anything else except for the wet bulb temperature, the surface temperature, and the time. Yeah, this is great. I mean, this is great work because, like I said, I can't express how much Bruce Tompkin was upset by, <laughs> by a lot of this stuff. So we've been talking about this amazing work with the closing of the science gaps in Appendix A, but how about Appendix B? Or in other words, what science has been done that will make Bruce happy? Bob? Bruce was instrumental in working a lot on the cooling side because he's the the, the Appendix B part. And one of the gaps is that not only on the process engineering side, you simply can't chill some of these products that fast. The other gap that Jeff can talk more about is this idea that you should be limited to one law of growth during that time. And that's where Bruce was instrumental in, in helping yeah, with that. That's right. Yeah. And as a result, USDA is reinitiating their baseline study or their market bath study to assess what 
you know, 25 years later, what are the current levels of clostridium perfringens out in the meat industry to determine if that one log increase that's in Appendix B is actually sufficient or adequate, or would it be more appropriate to change that to perhaps a two-increase log of clostridium perfringens during cooling, which would have a huge and profound impact on the cooling times that would be allowed. I mean, it could potentially, depending on the model and the statistics, it could potentially increase cooling by 50% or cooling times, you know, cooling time allowances by potentially 50% for some products. Well, my final question for you guys today is, what do you think is the most important takeaway that you've gotten from just from this collaboration of industry, academia, and government on these Appendix A and B revisions? Yeah, I think collaboration is where successes lie, right? And the different entities, you know, industry, academia, government, you know, they have their different roles, their different expertise, their different positions, right? Kind of in the different corners. And if science and collaborative spirit can lead the way, those three corners really start to come together. And there's quick realization that there's, you know, a lot of likeness from and similar interests from all three entities to right work together for a common cause. That was probably one of the greatest take-homes that I've observed from the working group or the work of the working group is that happened and started to happen. And right, the working group visited or had meetings with USDA a couple times out in Washington, D.C. to really have a roll up your sleeves and let's talk about these concerns and challenges and gaps and opportunities and right, what's the problem and what can be done and how do we do it and you know, how do we all work together? That type of collaborative spirit, you know, the interest is, is definitely for that to, for that to continue. And from that, I believe is the only way that some of the most challenging gaps will be overcome for right successful implementation of appendix A and appendix B. And more importantly, right? The assurance that, you know, we're producing safe products, you know, day in, day out, regardless of who you are, what volume or what size of operation you have. And right. Most importantly, protecting the humans, you know, the consumers in the human food supply. Well, for me, it was, I think one of the takeaways from the working group was the importance of bringing in this working group or bringing people together that came from all the different disciplines. So all the different disciplines could be represented and all could contribute, you know, from areas that they knew and understood. For example, it's easy for me to explain how the surface temperature moisture condenses on the cold product and the surface rises up to the dew point, And then after it dries, it gets up to the wet bulb and then it's hydrated that whole time. That's all process engineering, right? That's what I do. That's what I do for a living. That's what I've done since graduate school. But the microbiology side, how important it is to keep the bacteria hydrated and how quickly they can become desiccated and how intolerant or thermal tolerant they are when they become desiccated. I never had any training in that area. You have, of course, if you're in this industry, you know something about microbiology, but it was crucial to have these superstar microbiologists there. And then to have experienced meat scientists there too, that understood the effect on quality and the breadth of products and how we could apply this to other products besides that. And so and there's, there's a number of different quality aspects that come into play. So the multidisciplinary group that was there and really then the leadership of the group and I'm going to say nice things about you now, Jeff, so close your ears, but for, for Jeff to take the lead on this and put together this talented group to be so effective, they trusted each other. And then you've also got what's crucial on the trust part is that you've got a strong academic background because they are the impartial ones, right? You have this natural distrust 
between government regulators and industry that you just, you know, there's an uncertainty there, right? And so the academics then can provide that trust and credibility. And then the strong leadership that Jeff provided to bring the group together, it was so effective. It was just super gratifying to be part of it. And then once you've decided on a course of action to be able to take that back to the University of Wisconsin and ramp up and do the research required to support, you know, specific methods like hydrated surface lethality, and then more broadly look forward at how can we make Appendix A or make the process engineering side of the industry even stronger. Uh, It's very gratifying to work with the group and exciting to see what we can do as an industry, academic, government group to make our industry stronger. You know, I agree with both of you. I've been covering food science for quite a while, and I won't say how long because I don't want to date myself. But this collaboration on Appendix A and B has been really remarkable and probably among one of the most successful initiatives that I've ever reported on. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Jeff and Bob, about that success. So thanks very much for taking the time to share your insights with us today on MeetingPod. And listeners, you can find out more about both of our expert guests featured on today's episode online. To learn more about Hanson Tech LLC and the work of Bob and his group of experienced process engineers in the field of cooking, smoking, and cooling of meat products, visit www.hansontech.net. That's H-A-N-S-O-N-T-E-C-H dot net. To learn more about Jeff's latest research and extension activities, visit the University of Wisconsin-Madison website at www.wisc.edu and search for his faculty page. Or to find out more about UW-Madison's Meat Science and Animal Biologics program, visit meatsciences.cals.wisc.edu. And don't forget to visit our website at www.meetingplace.com to access our digital magazine and technical archives and podcasts to get more smart manufacturing advice first published in our R&D Matters and other newsletters. Thanks again, you guys. It was really great speaking with you. And I'm looking forward to sending a link to this episode to Bruce. He's going to love it. Sounds great. Well, we enjoyed uh, visiting with you today as well. All right. Thank you. And thanks to our sponsor, Fusion Tech. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.